0: Hi everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Adam Greenstein, Manager of Government Partnerships at Super Pedestrian. Super Pedestrian is a mobility company, and by mobility, I mean electric scooters. If you've heard the term electric scooters, you probably think companies like Bird and Lime, you know, these little electric scooters that We used to ride when we were kids, and now they're everywhere in major cities across the US. The big problem with these scooters is that many of them were designed for personal use, right? These are scooters that were purchased off the shelf and then rebranded. Superpedestrian is a totally different approach. They've recreated scooters from the ground up and designed them for safety, mobility, and long-term commercial use. And in the episode, Adam and I will discuss what the Super Pedestrian scooter is and all the tech and features that it comes jam-packed with, the big differentiators between their company and some of the big brands that exist today, what it means to run the government partnerships function at a company like theirs, and the one big idea that Adam's been thinking about. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Adam Greenstein, Manager of Government Partnerships at Super Pedestrian. Adam, welcome to the show. Oh, uh, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Man, first of all, super pumped to have you on the show. Before we dive into what you're working on and the craziness that is mobility, let's start with the basics. What is Super Pedestrian?
1: So, Super Pedestrian is a mobility engineering and technology company. So We were founded actually back in 2014 by a bunch of urban transport experts and uh, engineers from MIT that really saw lightweight, small electric vehicles as the future of mobility as our cities become more and more crowded. And so they went about developing really sophisticated micro electric vehicles, first starting with an e-bike platform known as the Copenhagen Wheel, and then most recently launching our e-scooter share service called Link. Wow.
0: Before we get into both of those things, I think what would be helpful for the listeners is talking a little bit about the landscape today and what differentiates super pedestrians. So I think most people that are listening will be familiar with bird and lime and those are great. I have a blast when I get to ride in those. Super Pedestrian is entering the ecosystem with a very interesting and novel take on the problem set at large and then actually how it manifests into the world. So, yeah. what is the core difference between Super Pedestrian and some of those name brands that our listeners might be familiar with?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think starting a few years ago, uh, a lot of people had identified, you know, the opportunity for electric scooters to really solve a lot of the mobility challenges in cities. And to get to really address that problem, uh, this industry was started by uh, several operators that essentially raised hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital to fund large amounts of scooters that were primarily just basically off the shelf. So these were electric scooters that you could purchase for personal use with Bird and Lime, you know, made some minor cosmetics, best changes to those devices, put the Lime and the Bird brand on them, and then did an amazing job of creating this market and working with cities to accommodate electric scooters as a new form of transportation. Mm -hmm. The difference in approach in Superpedestrian is that we really observed some of the challenges that resulted from putting fleets of vehicles on the streets that were really designed for personal usage. And so while we saw the future of e-mobility and electric scooters, rather than just kind of trying to be the first to market and gain market share... Um, By deploying vehicles that may not be ready for the rigors of shared use, we really spent the time engineering a vehicle that would be, first of all, safer for users to use on streets through Mm. a variety of really advanced technology, which we can talk about, but that also would have a much longer lifetime as an asset in itself so that the business can be sustainable for the long term.
0: And it sounds so obvious too, but if anyone has seen the memes on Twitter or on Instagram, where you have just streets full of broken and vandalized scooters, right? These things go get a couple wins under their belt and then they break down. They, right. they had such short life cycles. And to your point about building a, a model that's sustainable over the long term, if your core asset is churning after every few uses just not going to work. And you can keep raising money to try to make these iterative improvements to that. But it sounds like the way that you guys have thought about addressing that core problem, and then building all these great things on top of it, is it the default approach going forward? How has uh, a different approach to the intelligence platform, the technology, the physical assets that make its way onto the scooter, how do those differ from some of the the other ones that exist in the world today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few different components here. I think first, just as some background, the way that we look at this is really from an engineering point of view. Our team of engineers is the same folks that develop Segway's upright technology. They're very, very established at fitting really advanced tech into very small vehicles and components. Right? So when we saw the state of the world and how these scooters are breaking down after a few usage, we really went out to solve that challenge and saying, how do you make and design a scooter that can withstand the rigor of shared use on streets and also that can ensure that users are safe while riding it? Right? So I think the, the, the first thing is the design of a vehicle intelligence system. So this is essentially... Uh, 170 different computers and sensors that are all embedded into the uh, device that are constantly monitoring all the core components, right? So as an example, if the batteries can easily fry in this industry, right, and it can fry Mm -hmm. on a a user's ride, which is dangerous, but it's also so that not only poses a danger to the rider, but they also, once that... Battery fries, that vehicle is all, you know, but useless, right? Mm-hmm. So, just as a very simple example, our sensors on the vehicle are constantly monitoring the heat of the battery, right? And so, if it begins to get overheated where it, a, a failure might occur, unless it intervenes, it will actually stop itself. It will detect that before it occurs and shut down the vehicle. At that point, it alerts our operations team to the precise problem to go and fix in the vehicle, right? So it's essentially um, avoiding these failures before they occur. It both protects the rider during their ride, but also helps extend the lifetime of the vehicle because we can avoid these catastrophic failures that prematurely end the vehicle's
0: life. Interesting. And so the thesis here is yes, maybe the per unit cost per scooter is higher up front, yes. but the total revenue generation potential per scooter is a factor higher than anything else out there.
1: Right. I mean, as you can imagine, the buying thousands of scooters, I mean, th- these vehicles are expensive, mm-hmm. but it's all about the depreciation costs. So if you buy a $500 vehicle off the shelf and slap your brand on it, and it lasts You know, for 500 rides on the streets, which might amount Mm -hmm. to about two months, your vehicle costs over the course of the year are going to be astronomical. Astronomical, right? Compared to let's say a thousand dollar vehicle that is lasting for 2,500 rides, right, Mm -hmm. equating to a year, right? Now your overall vehicle cost is is much lower, and you have a much greater chance of you know yielding sustainable economics.
0: Mm-hmm. and think about how that trickles down to the consumer if you know that the average life cycle of a scooter is two months well you have to price the cost of the trip per mile accordingly yeah. right and it's just not smart yeah. and that's why you know it's funny it's why we saw it in rideshare, and we're seeing it right now with the you know lime and bird a lot of those early rides are almost fully subsidized you know A hundred
1: percent. Yeah. I mean, I think ultimately the folks who, a lot of the people who were early in this industry, um, they came from companies, for example, like Uber, right? Where they were, two things, they weren't creating their own vehicles, right? And they also didn't have a, a robust operations platform behind it. Like putting a bunch of shared scooters on the streets is more complicated to operate than if you have a rideshare driver operating their own vehicle. And so I think in many cases, they underestimated two things. One is the costs of the vehicle, or rather they overestimated the lifetime of the vehicle when they would put this on the streets, right? So, and that's a big reason why I, I think those companies were very unprofitable, have been over the past couple of years. But then the second is also what it takes to operate these, right? That getting the manpower on the streets to pick up scooters and charge them and repair them when they are damaged, right? That's also a huge cost that I think the early wave one of micromobility really underestimated the costs and complexities of both of those. And that's why mm-hmm. you see that you like major price increases to consumers in the last year and a lot of reports of layoffs and unprofitable operations despite massive venture capital raises.
0: That's super interesting. So I want to segue slightly to how you think about the government partner partnerships function at a mobility company like Superpedestrian, right? And it's really interesting to me because you look at the last 10 years of mobility and ride sharing. And I think historically, when the notion of ride sharing was first introduced to the world, there's, there's really no regulatory map that could have anticipated what was to come. And that's why there's been a cascade of issues there. And some of the the newer entrants to the industry have taken a much more partnership first oriented approach to introducing mobility programs to cities and municipalities. So can you tell me a little bit about what does it mean to be the manager of government partnerships at super pedestrian?
1: It means partnering with cities to create a program structure you know, through policy and through contracts, right, that will yield a successful micro mobility program.
0: Got it. And typically in your experience with cities that you're working with, like what is a defining characteristic of success yeah. in these programs? Great
1: great question. So I in my mind there's three elements. It is and they are safety for both Mm -hmm. riders and non-riders, sustainability. And you can think about that in terms of economic sustainability, but also environmental. And in this industry, those two things are very tied. (laughs) And, And the third is equity. Ultimately, if these programs can only be Accessed by privileged elite, <laughs> then we're essentially just like widening the gap between the haves and have-nots, rather than shrinking it, which I think this industry is really is designed to do. Mm-hmm. So I can talk in a little bit more depth about each of those
0: if you're interested. I, I would love to. On the equity piece, are cities thinking about leveling the playing field? Yeah. What are some example Great programs question. or yeah? Sure. How,
1: how, how does that
0: manifest? Sure.
1: So, I mean, the big thing is, is like in the, the wave one of the micro mobility 1.0, right? When uh, companies were just launching in, in cities, right? Without any regulatory structure backing it. But the idea for any micro mobility provider, right? As a for-profit company is to make money. So operators want to distribute their assets, those scooters in the places where they're going to get ridden the most. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that really equates to kind of the downtown core, right, where Mm -hmm. there's a lot of entertainment and restaurants and tourist activity and major employers and transit centers, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Cities, after studying these programs in that kind of unregulatory environment, realize that, wait a second. Like, what about all these other areas, like maybe on the outskirts of a city that we're beholden to? Those are our, our constituents, right? And if we pro- provide, a, provide a service, cities yeah. want it to serve the entire community. You know, are they being left out? Like they're not able to access. So how have cities address this? And now that the industry is maturing, many cities are via ordinance or via the terms of a contract that they might reach yeah. with a provider. What they do is establish kind of equity distribution requirements. So Mm -hmm. they'll actually carve up the city into different zones and tell an operator that every morning you have to have 20% of your assets in this low-income area and 30% in this area in in the hopes of of really achieving more equitable access. Got it. Now, that is... A challenge because operators will say, well, wait a second. Like, If we put our scooters here in some of these areas, they just aren't generating the ridership that we need and the revenue to cover our costs. So operators push back in many cases against those equity requirements, saying that we can't possibly remain economically viable here and sustain this service for the city if we're forced to distribute into these areas that really don't generate a lot of ridership in, in some cases.
0: Oh man, this is super interesting. So today as it exists, right? Super pedestrian is a platform player, right? It sells the units to fleet operators. Is that correct? I mean, I think
1: that is one of our potential paths in the future. Mm-hmm. I, I think right now what we have is a vehicle that is the best able to comply with a lot of city requirements that we Mm -hmm. believe is the safest for riders and that we believe has the lowest overall costs of ownership, right? And so before we Mm -hmm. start selling that device, right, to other operators, I think our mission certainly is to demonstrate that all those things that I just mentioned, right, and do that operating our own assets, right, as a fully integrated uh, micromobility provider. So mm-hmm. as of last year, when we had finalized all the, the specs on this device and started manufacturing it, we first started to partner with a company called Zagster. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Zagster was is micromobility fleet management company. So they didn't make the vehicles, they specialized in, in operating them, the boots on the ground. And so we rolled out our first program with them early in January this year. And under the brand name Link, the program was successful. And this spring, we actually uh, acquired the Zagster fleet management service. So we acquired that asset. And now basically in bringing over that team that has 10 years of experience operating these programs across the country, We are now a fully integrated provider with what we think is the most sophisticated vehicle and then the most experienced micromobility operations team in the industry.
0: Oh, man. That's awesome. Okay. So one of the topics uh, that I want to explore before we segue to some things that are off topic is the state of affairs today. COVID has touched industry in ways no one could have imagined some industries have benefited immensely. Yeah. Most e-commerce categories, grocery, other categories. like Bread
1: bread makers, right? Like they're up like a thousand percent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: So a a question for you is how, A, has COVID affected micro-mobility programs? But then B, like I'd imagine that there is some set of, repercussions here, right? Does there have to be extra sanitary processes around use? Like, what does it look like, the relationship between COVID and micromobility today?
1: Sure. Well, I think the first thing that, the the first impact is that people, at least in, in the initial stages of the COVID outbreak, are more hesitant to use public transportation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: trains and buses are seeing reduced levels of ridership and we're seeing increased reliance on the other modes of, of transportation, which include both personally owned cars and of course, you know, bikes and scooters, right? Mm-hmm. So personal bike ridership, as an example, is, is up through the roof, right? And in many c- cities, we're seeing bikes and scooters getting ridden at increased rates from what they were pre-COVID. But the really interesting thing is, is that the use cases have changed. So it used to be like a, a primary use case might be just taking a scooter the half mile to your nearest train station, right? And then hopping off and getting on the train. What we're seeing now is that we're seeing rides of a much longer duration and distance. So people are taking a scooter not just as kind of the first mile, last mile, but actually for their entire trip, right? So what used to be a 10-minute scooter ride is now being, is more like a 25, you know, 30-minute ride. And that does help the industry because the industry charges by the minute. The other impact, though, that's interesting is, as I mentioned, that we're seeing reduced public transit usage and actually increased reliance on cars. So In some of the areas that were impacted most heavily in China, had bad congestion before COVID hit, a car congestion. And now after, they're seeing it's actually worse, right? Because more people are using their car to get to work and not public transportation. So cities now may have been a little bit hesitant to accommodate micromobility before. But now what they really don't want is kind of like a car apocalypse where they had congestion before, and now it's even worse. So cities are becoming increasingly open to adopting new micromobility programs, and in and, and many areas of the world that previously were like totally banned electric scooters, UK being one of them, have have just fast tracked the entire process. And in the course of like the last sixty days, every major city in the UK is opening up to electric scooters, whereas two months ago it was banned on, at the federal level. Mm-hmm. So, we're, so we're seeing a, a major prioritization of these types of programs from cities, which is also really positive.
0: That's interesting. All right, Adam, I, I wanna to segue to the back half of the interview where instead of talking about things that involve super pedestrian specifically or state of affairs, let's zoom out and look forward. And one of the things that I, I'd love to hear your take on Are other concepts or projects that touch just the broader category of transportation in general? Sure. My question for you is, what's the most exciting or innovative take on transportation that you're seeing? It could be a startup in their first mile. It could be an incumbent of a couple of years, but from your point of view, what are the most interesting thing you're seeing in the space more broadly?
1: Sure. So this is a very kind of urbanist geeky take, but I am really interested in helping cities transform their physical infrastructure. And I think it's especially relevant today in the, the COVID environment. Mm -hmm. So basically the high level problem is that the way that people are getting around is changing rapidly, right? In part because of the rapid adoption of electric scooters and, and this industry, right? But city infrastructure doesn't change at the same pace. You know what I mean? Like cities are, you know, notoriously slow to move. And B, when they make infrastructure changes... Typically it's like a big capital expenditure and a big permanent project and building out concrete, et cetera. And like, those two processes really don't align because you've got like a really rapidly changing way that people move around. And many times programs are like scooter programs, for example, are seasonal, right? So, whereas you have these permanent, you know, long-term infrastructure changes on the other hand with cities and, And so, like the project that I'm really interested in, and and I think that there's uh, some grassroots movement around in a lot of communities, is this idea of pop-up temporary infrastructure, right? So rather than building out an extension to the sidewalk with concrete, like, and building out like permanent ballards to like designate, you know, a scooter parking area or whatever, like Mm -hmm. the the idea that you can have like temporary you know, parklets as they're called that like take over a parking space and can be used as, you know, a temporary, let's say like parking hub or also like outdoor seating for like the local business. Right. So like right now, all these local coffee shops and everything, you know, want to have outdoor seating, et cetera. But like, how can they quickly like get some like temporary infrastructure out on the streets that can
0: accommodate it? Oh, that's interesting.
1: Like, that basically, like, are you familiar with the concept of a parklet? Have you heard of that?
0: I haven't, no.
1: So, a parklet is like you basically, uh, and, and businesses, they have programs in cities like this. Like, a, biz, a local business will apply to for a parklet, which is essentially like a wooden platform with some benches and maybe some um, greenery and planters, like a little mini park, but that takes over the space of a car parking space. Mm hmm. Right. So And and so right now, like a lot of city, there's a lot of movement to like transform parking spaces into other public uses. And maybe that's a little mini park. Maybe that's an outdoor seating for a cafe. Maybe that's a bike or scooter parking area.
0: That is super interesting. I, I saw maybe it was last year or sometime within last year, a startup called Air Garage hit the scene. I don't know if you've heard of them. I think they are funded by Y Combinator, maybe. Oh, cool. And, what, what do they and do? Fund. So they're effectively that. They're like, hey, there's all of this unutilized space that exists in the world, which is parking lots and parking garages. And I believe they are a platform that connects uh, parking lot owners and operators with other brands and companies that need space. Cool. For whatever reason.
1: And it sounds like for the parking lot owners, you know, that maybe are, well, it could be a public pr- parking lot or, or private. You know, I, I think it's like we basically just can't, I don't think that we need to rely on our government to transform public space in a way that so it's more valuable for us, right? Like mm-hmm. that. that's traditionally the city's role, I think obviously the city's going to have a hand in that, but I think there's startups, right? And the visit, the social enterprise, right? Like people can come up with technology and business practices to transform it more quickly and better. Mm-hmm. So I kind of want to do that. I want to help us transform our, our city streets so that we can enjoy that more.
0: That is so interesting, man. Why should cars get all the sweet spaces in a, in a city? Right. you know? <laughs> <laughs> the most ambitious project I've seen recently is called Cal de Sac. Have you heard of them? No. So it's a company that also raised a bunch of funding and they bought a pretty large plot of land, I think it's in Tempe, Arizona, or some neighborhood in Arizona and they're building a whole new kind of miniature city from the ground up that is completely carless. And I I don't know enough about the specs of what that includes, but from from what I gathered in the initial PR is it'll be like a reimagination of cities And how would it look like if cars didn't exist or if they were to exist for core services, like mail delivery and of that sort, what would you change? And I think to your point about why do cars get pretty much full privilege to everything in cities?
1: Well, you know, there's a lot of answers to that. I think a lot of people have strong opinions about that, but I think back to the infrastructure, I think that's why it's really interesting because it's like if, basically our entire country's infrastructure has been built around an innovation that came about in 1910 the car like we built permanent infrastructure it, it, highways parking lots everything's built around this one form of mobility mm-hmm. but the ways that we're getting around and so that kind of like locked us in in, in, in many ways and so mm-hmm. now that we're kind of like pushing the boundaries and we're starting to get other modes i just think we really got to think about how we can build infrastructure around to support those modes and like really quickly you know mm-hmm. so so i like I because it, it, it's hard because we can't like cul-de-sac we can't tear down boston or new york city and rebuild it from scratch
0: mm-hmm. man that's really fascinating adam before we part ways what I like to do is just roll out the red carpet for our guests. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, you know, any announcements that you want to leave with our listeners? The floor is yours. So, Put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I mean I think
1: I think one of the things I've learned in a government partnerships role is really the role that citizens play in the adoption of these programs in their community. I've been at, you know, countless city council meetings where the city, you know, local government is determining whether or not they want to, you know, adopt scooters in their community. And you know, there's council members speak, staff speaks, you know, I might speak as a representative super pedestrian, but any member of the public can speak too. And oftentimes, you know, when a concern, if a citizen comes up and says, you know, I support this for these reasons, this is what it's going to mean for me in my life. Um, and I want scooters, you know, the city really, really takes that to heart. If conversely, if you know, they say that I don't want that for these reasons. They take that to heart, and so I'm just kind of I've learned I'm I'm really kind of amazed and, and inspired by that kind of like democracy in action, where like I never thought as an individual citizen in, in a you know my city that I can really have as much of an impact. But like I, I really encourage people who have strong feelings about this to to actually attend and part and participate. Um, in the, their local government meetings, where they're making these decisions, because you'd be surprised um, by how much of how receptive that you know all those folks are to just even one person's you know strongly felt
0: opinion. I, I might snap that bite and use that as our featured uh, <laughs> okay. video on the Instagram, man. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was this was honestly such a blast. Thank awesome, you,
1: man. yeah, I really enjoyed it, man. It's it's, it's great meeting you. A great talking with another Boston guy. And, and I really uh, appreciate you
0: inviting me. Cool, man. Hey, we'll have to do this in 12 months or so. I hope so. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at In Good Hands. Also, special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Peter A. Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.